Hello, everyone. I want to thank you for joining me for episode 49 of the Mark Ice Show. It is Sunday, April 30th. Hope everybody had a good weekend. And I want to talk today about the Trump tax plan. So this is probably the biggest piece of news to come out this week. You could maybe point at uh, at new North Korean news, things that are going on with that whole situation. That's obviously very important too, but that has been developing for longer than just a week. So the the biggest new news I think that came out is what Trump wants to do here with tax reform. And this is one of the few times where what Trump has proposed has actually lived up to how he was hyping it. So he was hyping this up as it, it's going to be the biggest tax cut in American history, uh, just basically, you know, basically promising the moon here with this. And it pretty much lives up to expectations. So there are very few details at this point in time. We don't know a ton. We know basically what they've said about it and what they handed out as this one-page summary of the Trump tax plan here. So a lot of details are left out, and I'm not going to be able to speak to all these details on, on deductions necessarily or what the brackets are going to look like, you know, where they're going to be actually cut off. But here are some of the details of what the Trump tax plan has in it, This of, of what the summary said, basically. So rather than the current seven tax brackets, there will instead be three tax brackets of 10%, 25%, and 35%. The standard deduction will, will be doubled under this plan. And of course, I'm saying will be if it is passed. I don't believe this is ultimately going to be passed, though it's going to be difficult, I think, especially for the Republicans to not pass this. But I'll go into that in more detail later. I want to say, first of all, go through a summary of what this plan actually says. Um, also want to protect the home ownership and charitable gift tax deductions. So that's protecting the mortgage interest deduction and charitable gift tax deduction. Repeal the alternative minimum tax. Repeal the death tax, which is the estate tax. Repeal the 3.8% Obamacare tax uh, for businesses rather than the the current corporate income tax rate. Reduce that to a 15% business tax rate, which is far more competitive with the rest of the world. That compares to a current 35% corporate income tax rate. So that's a big deal. Also included in this is a territorial tax system, which the details haven't really come out in this, but basically what's been said about that is that only the U.S. earnings of American companies would be taxed here in the U.S. But there are still a lot of unanswered questions about how that's going to work. A lot of the, especially the the business tax aspects of this are still up in the air. And that's going to happen when all you have is a one-page sheet of paper listing out kind of intentionally without, without particular details. Like I said before, we don't know yet what the actual thresholds for these particular income tax brackets are going to look like. Um, and, and a lot of the, a lot of the nitty gritty things of this tax system, we just don't know. So I'm trying to give an overview of what we know right now, as this comes out more, I'm probably going to do another episode going through the details and, and what the implications are of those details. Uh, so also within this, there, um, is likely the ability of businesses to be able to fully deduct capital investments when they are made. Um, this is part of the House GOP plan. So this is kind of inference that you would think probably the Trump plan would include this as well. Um, but really what I, what I want to talk about is not just 
the implications of, of the particular you know, the particular details of this tax plan. I want to talk about what it means for the government as a whole. So in most circles, this has been estimated, this would probably cost the U.S. government at least probably $500 billion or so in revenue in a given year. Uh, so assuming that no spending is reduced, which it doesn't look like Trump wants to attack spending whatsoever. So if, if spending isn't attacked is not reduced in any sort of meaningful way because the only spending reductions we've seen proposed thus far have just been funneled into other areas. There haven't been any real spending deductions by the federal government. So if they're not willing to do that, and obviously reducing taxes is far more politically palatable than reducing spending. Everybody wants to pay less into the federal government and have the government do more for them. That's that's, you know, that's been the way that democracy has, t has trended, not just in the United States, but in other countries as well. Uh, so tax, passing tax reform would be the easy part of that. That's why I was saying I don't think this is going to pass. And David Stockman was interviewing, basically saying the same thing, that he thinks this is dead on arrival. And the reason why I agree with him is because I think fundamentally the Republicans are just as big government of a party as the Democrats are, regardless of of the rhetoric that they want to push forward about the Republicans being this, the small government alternative to Democrats. They're both big government uh, parties at heart, and they like to spend money in slightly different ways, but they don't really differ fundamentally on wanting to tax the American people at high levels to have money to use. Maybe the Democrats want to use it more for social internal programs and Republicans more so would like it to go toward defense. You know, Maybe there there's some slight differences there, but at the heart of it, they are very similar. So that's why I don't think that this tax plan, regardless of what the details are that come out about it, I don't think it's going to be passed through Congress. But if it was to be passed, I don't also see the House being the, the House and Senate being willing to pass any sort of spending reductions. I just don't see that happening. So what will we see? See higher deficits. And how is that going to be financed? That's going to be financed probably by very loose monetary policy. You've got to think that the Fed's going to have to print a lot of money in order to basically monetize this debt. Because as more and more treasuries are issued, so as, as more debt needs to be issued in order to finance these deficits, interest rates will be pushed up. Because think about you, you flood the market with a particular asset and all else being equal, the price of that asset will fall. And so when the price of a bond falls, it means that the, the yield, the interest rate on it goes up. You need to pay a higher interest rate if you are the borrower. If you're the one issuing the bonds, you need to pay a higher interest rate than you would have to if fewer were being issued. You know, it's kind of a, kind of a supply and demand type situation there. So interest rates will go up in that scenario. And that means that, that more money will have to be printed or more money will more money will have to be financed in order to pay, in order to service the existing debt, because we have twenty trillion dollars in debt standing out there right now. So I feel like this is a this is a situation that's going to feed on itself, and will lead to more loose monetary policy in order to enable what they want to happen here. But I agree with David Stockman. I want to read a quote that he that he said that I think is very true. The president is, quote, essentially a 70-year-old kid in a candy store who wants one of everything, more for defense, veterans, border walls, law enforcement, infrastructure, and phenomenal tax cuts, too, without the inconvenience of paying for any of it, end quote. And I think it's very true. He, he wants to have his cake and eat it, too. 
So he wants to give the American people what they want. They want to pay less taxes. That's always the case. People want to pay less in taxes if they have the choice. But he also wants to give them all of these additional goodies. So that's when people are using populism as a derogatory term. I think this is really what they mean. Um, it, it really depends on, on who's using it. Some people use populism as a synonym for racist or, you know, uh, bigot or some other term like that. So people on the left would use populism that way. But I think this is more um, what populism has become, both promising lower taxes and bigger government at the same time. So I think Stockman's right here that this is how Trump is operating and he wants to be well-liked and wants to be popular. And maybe he can operate for four years this way. Maybe he can operate for four years with huge deficits and he'll be able to push it off to his successor, assuming that he loses in the 2020 election or um, he, he decides not to run and somebody else becomes president. Maybe they're able to push off the fiscal calamity until then. That's possible. I don't think it's likely. I think we're going to see a recession at some point. And I think if this tax reform is passed, and, and I want to make it clear that I would like to see both far lower spending and far lower taxes on the American people. That would be my ideal. But I think if you just do one without the other, we're basically accelerating the inevitable that the Fed's going to have to be that much more aggressive because you're, you're taking away the revenue side without addressing the spending side whatsoever. And the spending side is where the biggest issues are because we already spend far more than we take in in a given year in terms of taxes. So that's why we're adding substantially to, to the debt, to the total debt every year. And the total debt's going up by more than what the actual deficits are because of a lot of the off-balance sheet items. So that includes you know Social Security and Medicare. These aren't even counted there. And that's why you hear all the time that if a private business did its accounting like the federal government, their uh, their CFO would be in prison, or you know their their accountant would be in prison because it's it's not a true reflection of how much in debt we actually are. Uh, so maybe he can push it off. Maybe he can maybe he can continue to stave off the inevitable here until 2020. I don't see it happening, but I think ultimately this is probably a good thing if this is to go through. If this is to be passed, I think it's going to accelerate when we need to start making some tough decisions. And we do need to make tough decisions. They become tougher the longer we wait to make them. But we'll have to make tough decisions, whether it's today or whether it's two, five, ten years down the line, however long it can be when you're staving off the inevitable here. But maybe this accelerates when that has to be done. And I think that's a good thing. I would much rather make that decision sooner rather than later because it will hurt less the sooner we do it rather than waiting until our backs are up against a wall before making any sort of real tough decisions on the spending side. But I think if you look at what the Fed's going to have to do, if this actually does come to fruition and the spending side is not addressed, and I do not expect them to ever address the spending side until they absolutely have to, the Fed is going to have to be extremely aggressive and that's not going to be good for the U.S. dollar. I don't see anywhere for the dollar to go but down in that scenario because with the Fed being that aggressive and, and unleashing QE4 or something very similar, uh, you will see the value of the dollar decline. And the dollar is at pretty strong levels right now. So I don't really see I don't really see any upside in the dollar. 
especially when you see this news coming out and what it, what it looks like the Trump presidency is going to be. It looks like it's going to be very similar to what past presidencies have been. And maybe he wants to cut taxes while raising spending by just as much as past presidents have where Obama was, was more aggressive on taxation, um, but also increased spending substantially. And so the common theme of what I've been saying about Trump has been that he's not really any different from the prior administrations that we've had. And it's more of the same. It, there's a slightly different flavor to it. Maybe he speaks a little more, uh, a little more off the cuff than what we're used to, but the policies aren't that different. This is one of the few actually novel things that I think he's proposed. And like I said before, like I said a couple times, we have to wait and see what the details are to really know the full implications of, of what's going to happen here and to really be able to give any sort of percentage chance of, <clears throat> of this actually getting through Congress. I would say it's a very low percentage right now, but you know maybe that shifts depending on uh, depending on what additional details that we get. Another important part of this tax plan that I didn't talk about before when I was going through the summary is the deductibility of state and local taxes on, um, on, on federal taxes. So you're able to do this if you're itemizing deductions. You can, um, you can deduct what you pay in state and local taxes from your federal tax bill. And Chuck Schumer came out, so Chuck Schumer, senator from New York State, where I'm from, and he urged Trump to, um, to not have this in effect. So he said that, um, quote, the worst part of the president's plan is that he eliminates state and local, local deductibility. Eliminating state and local deductibility is a dagger aimed at the heart of middle-class folks throughout New York State. And then this article goes on, so this is from Newsday, saying uh, getting rid of the state and local tax deductions would hurt New York property owners who already face some of the highest property tax rates in the country and make the state less competitive in attracting new businesses and residents, Schumer said. That wasn't a direct quote by Schumer, but it was a summary of, of what he said. Citing state figures, Schumer said removing the property tax deduction could result in an average uh, $4,300 tax increase for Long Island property owners who file itemized tax returns and an average $5,500 increase for New York City taxpayers. So I did another episode. I'll reference that. I forget what, what number it was, but I'll have it in the links. I'll have that along with the summary of the Trump tax plan and these articles that I'm referencing here. But I did a whole, a whole episode where I talked about people fleeing from higher tax areas in the United States to lower tax areas, really from higher cost of living areas to lower cost of living areas. And not coincidentally, the lower cost of living areas tend to have lower taxes than those higher cost of living areas. But this is another thing here. So being able to deduct that state and local uh, tax burden from your federal taxes, that's something that's basically subsidizing people to stay in those high cost of living areas and those higher tax areas to stay in the, the New York's and the California's of the world. And I agree with this article that New York taxpayers face some of the highest ta property tax rates in the country. But why is the federal government basically enabling that to continue? You know, why should that group of people face basically, basically have an advantage at the federal tax level compared to people in other states. You know, what what somebody in New York State is paying toward toward, uh, toward their, their municipality in property taxes or is paying toward their state in 
um, in income taxes and state income taxes, how is that possibly benefiting anybody in the rest of the country? It's not. That's staying within the state. That's staying within their municipality. So those people should not be being treated any differently than people in other states. So I think this is a good aspect of this tax plan. And um, this should not be a part of the federal tax code. I think that the mortgage interest deduction too should not be in effect, or you should also be able to, to deduct your rent. There shouldn't be any sort of any sort of advantage placed on home ownership versus renting. That's a kind of a different topic, but they they both kind of had the same idea behind them. Uh, and so I think if this passes, or say even this one reform was able to go through, even if everything else in the tax code stayed the same and this was to change, I think that would accelerate the trend that I was talking about there of people leaving areas like New York City and really New York State as a whole and the more expensive cities of California, but also California as a whole because of the, the high tax burdens that are facing people there. And in, even people in lower cost areas of those states. You know, I, I didn't come from New York City. I came from Western New York. Well, I, I was living in Syracuse, New York before living or before moving out here. And it's not expensive to live in those places. Some of the lower housing costs in the entire country are in those cities, but the property tax rates are high and you're still paying that state income tax rate. Um, of course, New York City, people people in New York City have additional taxes on them beyond what the New York state taxpayers as a whole are paying. But really, it remains true that by moving out to North Dakota where I live now or moving to another lower tax state, I would save substantial money every year. You know, not, not just on... Even if I'm renting, my rent's going to be lower uh, because the, the property taxes are lower on that property than they would be on the same property in New York State. Um, but also, if, it, if I owned a house, the property tax on that house would be less than what it would be if I was living anywhere in New York State. And uh, really, the, the heavy hitter is the state income tax rate. And the state income tax in New York State is, is substantially higher than the North Dakota state income tax rate. So it, it, it really means I make thousands of dollars more here in, in North Dakota than I would in New York state, assuming salaries are the same and that cost of living for other things is virtually the same, which I don't think there's too much of a variation there compared to where I moved from to where I am now, but it makes a big difference. It, it really does. Uh, so I think that's an important part of this tax plan and Chuck Schumer coming out and, and saying this for his constituents, I don't blame him for saying it because I'm sure these people are howling at him because it's a way that they're able to reduce their their federal tax bill. But looking at it from somebody that's that's lived that lives in another part of the country, it makes no sense for the rest of the taxpayers in the United States to basically be subsidizing the people that live in these very high cost of living coastal cities. And New York City is probably the most prominent example of that, but you can lump in San Francisco, you know, San Jose, uh, Sacramento. You can lump in uh, probably Chicago with that as well. A lot of other cities too, but those are the ones that, that come to mind first. A couple other uh, quotes I wanted to read from this article where Schumer was really the, the centerpiece of it, but he said that there was bipartisan agreement over preserving the state and local property tax deductions. Last Wednesday, Representative Peter King, Republican, said that the proposal would be a, quote, direct hit to the Long Island economy 
and Representative Lee Zeldin said it was, quote, imperative that our local residents aren't subject to double and triple taxation and retain the ability to deduct local taxes and reduce their federal tax bill, end quote. Well, what they're leaving out of this article is that only people who make enough or are in a high tax high tax enough area are able to actually take advantage of this deduction. Most people, myself included, are using the standard deduction. You know, we don't we're not making enough money or we don't we don't have the taxation at the local or state level by choice. You know, I I moved to an area that one of the main reasons why I did was because of the lower taxes in North Dakota. But we're not taking advantage of of this itemization. And people in New York State that either are living in a lower cost of, of living area within the state or don't make a whole lot of money, they're also not paying enough in state and local taxes to be itemizing their deductions either. So this is only the people both making enough for this to matter and that are in these high tax states that are taking advantage of this deduction at all. So everybody else is subject to double and triple taxation. You know, I'm subject to double taxation here. I'm I'm taking the standard deduction, but I, I have to pay both my federal taxes on my adjusted gross income and my state taxes on my adjusted gross income. And I'm not deducting that state tax or any of my local taxes from um, from what I have to pay to the federal government because the, the tax burden here isn't enough for that to happen. Uh, so it's amazing. It's amazing once their constituents are at stake and these are these tend to be at, at the very least upper middle class, but mostly upper class people that Chuck Schumer can talk all he wants about how, you know, you got to even the playing field for the for the little guy and, and how uh, how the whole country is is rigged against the middle class. And yet you want to push these kinds of things because your constituents are being hurt by it. But it goes to show. And like I said, I don't really blame them. Um, that's really what they're in Congress to do. I hate Chuck Schumer with a passion, but I think that uh, he's he's doing what most congressmen do, and that's being there to to try to get special favors for their constituents. So I don't think Schumer is is that unique in any sort of way. In related news, which I should talk about, um, this is I guess somewhat related to to the Trump tax plan, but there was also the impending doom of a government shutdown. And first, a week-long extension was passed. And then after that, there was um, a deal to fund the government through the fiscal year ending September 30th. So basically another five months from today. They passed a $1 trillion spending bill. And this bill increased defense spending. And um, there was continued federal funding of Planned Parenthood and money for Obamacare subsidies within this plan. So like always happens, they find a way to make a deal magically at the last second, and there are never any real cuts. And that's what happened here. And uh, Chuck Schumer, our good friend, I've got a, I've got a quote from him about this too. He, he seemed to keep coming up in the articles I was doing for the research before this show. Uh, quote, this agreement is a good agreement for the American people and takes the threat of a government shutdown off the table. The bill ensures taxpayer dollars aren't used to fund an ineffective border wall, excludes poison pill riders, and increases investments in programs that the middle class relies on, like medical research, education, and infrastructure. So, uh, end quote. So, 
more of the same. They're, you know, this is the, the typical bipartisan compromise that we see where spending isn't really reduced and they, they all like to pound their chests leading up to it. And what ends up happening is a bipartisan compromise ends up happening where there continues to be high levels of spending. And I don't think anything will ever really change. That's why I don't, I don't get why people make such a big deal about these potential government shutdowns every time they come up. It's the same story every time. It's never anything different than both sides want to claim it as being a, a win for their side. And we're going to be having the same discussion probably leading up to, up to September 30th. And we're going to be seeing every time they every time they come up against that deadline, we're going to have the same discussion, and they're going to come to a similar compromise. So I don't want to go into details too much about what happened here because it's what was expected. It's why I was not talking about it on the show leading up to it because I don't think it's an important story. I just we've seen it too many times where it's not worth us taking time to analyze or taking time to look into it deeper. It just it just really isn't. So like I said, I don't want to take any more time on that. I do want to talk briefly to cap off this episode about the Brett Stevens New York Times controversy. So Brett Stevens wrote his first column in the New York Times. Um, he's a, you know, kind of a milk toast conservative, kind of a, you know, blah conservative. I don't know what you want to call him, you know, just kind of a kind of a moderate conservative and wrote an article saying basically saying that the science is 100% completely settled and conveying absolute certainty on the issue of climate change really opens up the climate change movement to a lot of criticism. So every time that uh, that there is any sort of science that comes out, any sort of research that comes out that is in opposition to what is the prevailing wisdom on climate change, then it it basically pokes a hole in the entire argument. Um, And I read this doesn't really seem too controversial to me, uh, but people were freaking out about it, saying that the New York Times having the audacity to, to post a column, it, it's not a news article, it's a column, to even post something saying that there's any doubt about the accepted science on climate change. Now they want to cancel their subscriptions. People all over the place were canceling their subscriptions. And it's funny that four or five months ago, uh, Subscribing to the New York Times was an act of resistance against Trump. It's funny how quickly that changes. But I couldn't believe that this paper posted a column saying this. They weren't saying it in a news article, weren't trying to pass it off as news. It's a column. It's an opinion piece that people are going to to run out and cancel their subscriptions over this. And it really goes to show how um, how this climate change thing really has become a religion. And if you don't tow the exact company line, you are no longer an adhering member of the religion. And I've said many times in the show, I don't really know enough about climate change. I've not done enough research to be able to to be any sort of authority on the subject or to be able to, to talk at any detail about it. But I think the point that Stevens makes is a good one. And I'm and I'm going to quote here just part of it. You can I'll I'll post a link to the entire column. You can read the entire column if you want. But he says uh, Quote, let me put it another way. 
claiming total certainty about the science traduces the spirit of science and creates openings for doubt whenever a climate claim proves wrong. Demanding abrupt and expensive changes in public policy raises fair questions about ideological intentions. Censoriously asserting one's moral superiority and treating skeptics as imbeciles and deplorables wins few converts. None of this is to deny climate change or the possible severity of its consequences, but ordinary citizens also have a right to be skeptical of an overweening scientism. They know, as all environmentalists should, that history is littered with the human wreckage of scientific errors married to political power. End quote. I don't have any problem with that. Even if I did have a problem with it, though, if this was a news source that I generally liked, which the New York Times is not a news source that I generally like, but if it was one, then I'm going to say... This is a column. This is one person's opinion. This is not the, the paper's opinion. And I'm going to read it and move on. I'll maybe go down in the comments section and say, this is why I disagree with what the writer's saying, and then move on. But it's incredible what this has become, what the climate change movement has become, that even in an opinion column, someone posting any sort of doubt or saying what the damage could be to basically saying that we know exactly what's going on, we are 100% right, and anybody that questions us at all is an idiot. That saying that if somebody says that, they're going to leave the news source entirely. They're going to stop, stop subscribing to that news source. It's really incredible. And I thought that this was worth talking about because the reactions were hilarious. It really seemed like satire the way that people were reacting to this. And somebody said something that they were trying to call to cancel their subscription. And and the person that they talked to on the phone said that they were being slammed with people trying to cancel their subscriptions, which is complete BS. There's no way, there's no way that somebody on the phone, regardless of what's actually happening, there's no way that somebody on the phone is going to say, oh yeah, everybody's out there trying to cancel their subscriptions. Nobody wants to read this newspaper anymore. I mean, nobody's going to be saying that on the phone. It'd be like, I used to work at a hotel for a while, uh, a few years back, and if something was going wrong at our hotel, if there were maintenance issues or something and multiple people had left the hotel, if somebody calls me, I'm not going to be saying, oh my God, you know, we have all these major maintenance issues and everybody's trying to cancel. Please, please go on hold and I'll get back to you so you can cancel too. And nobody would ever say that on the phone. Uh, so just the, the hysteria over this was absolutely ridiculous. I could understand if... They came out and, and the New York Times said this in a news piece and tried to pass it off as fact. You know, I could understand that. Maybe people being angry if they really believed in the in the New York Times being a you know, being a centrist news source or being a, being an unbiased news source. But this is a column. And you are going to read columns that you disagree with, even on on uh, sites that you completely agree with. Um in their news reporting, that you think their news reporting is wonderful. That's the whole point of an opinion portion of a newspaper or of a website. So you can hopefully start to read some opinions that differ from you and not be caught up in your echo chamber. And so I wanted to talk about that because I thought it was just incredible. And it goes to show you how, I guess, people can live their entire lives, go through days upon days and years without really having to confront opinions that are different from theirs. And when they encounter an opinion that's different from theirs in a place where they think is a safe space, I guess like they think the New York Times is, that's only going to have things that they 100% agree with on there, then they rush to avoid that source, that, that source that invaded their safe space there. So I think that's everything I've got to talk about. I don't really have too much more to add on that, but I, I needed to talk about it briefly on the show 
because I think, especially if you're listening to the show and you kind of come from a more libertarian bent, you're constantly reading, you know, if, if you read CNN or the New York Times or really any mainstream news source out there, you are constantly seeing things that you disagree with, even in their actual news reporting where they're trying to be unbiased. You're seeing assumptions that, wait a minute, I don't think I would make that assumption either. But are we running out and never visiting that site again because we see that? No, I think we're so desensitized. We're so used to it that we just accept that as part of being a human being, as part of reading news. You're, you have to sift through the assumptions that they're making and how they may disagree with what you think. But I think it's actually more useful to read things that you disagree with than things that are just telling you everything that you already think. But that's what a lot of these people want. A lot of these people online just want to be told what they believe, just read what they believe, and don't want to be challenged on those things whatsoever. And that's really what I got. This is yet another example of of thousands that you see if you're if you're online constantly where people don't want to be challenged people want to just be told what they believe and just things that reinforce what they believe and nothing more and i'm not saying that new york times readers are the only ones guilty of that i I think everybody is guilty of that to an extent but i think certain groups are far more used to seeing things that they that they don't agree with that they just accept it as part of reading the news, as part of picking up a newspaper, as part of going to virtually any website. You're going to see things that you just don't agree with. And it becomes kind of fun to see, okay, that's the assumption that they're making. Okay, what's the argument that they're they're building around that assumption? And then you can kind of unpack what their line of thinking is. And maybe you read an entire article without agreeing with a certain thing or without without one thing that you agree on in that article. But I think that's far more fun and enriching than just reading something that you 100% agree with or that you came into it already knowing. Uh, So thank you so much for listening. Should have episode 50 out. I mean, another milestone episode, hopefully tomorrow, possibly or early this week. I still have more things on the, on the queue that I want to discuss. So thank you for joining me. Please go out and follow, uh, subscribe on, iTunes or any sort of podcast app or aggregating site out there. I thank you so much for your continued support and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Have a great week.